wonder this morning as you listen to that reading about the rich man and Lazarus, where you saw yourself. I have to say that I struggle to know quite where to put myself. I wouldn't normally call myself a rich man. Rich is a term I would uh, use for people like the evil Larry Ellison, for example, or uh, less evil people like Bill Gates, or if I was to think of New Zealanders, Graham Hart, or Owen Glenn, or the Todd family, or John Key, all people on our rich list. They are rich, and I am not. In relation to them, I'm poor. But I also know that compared to many people in New Zealand and around the world, I am also not poor. I have a lot more than many other people. My time in the Solomons, however, changes that perspective slightly. With the people that I lived among for the two and a half weeks, I was incredibly rich. I had a lot more access to money and health care and communication and transport and just a whole lot more resources than they could ever possibly dream of. My life was infinitely more comfortable and infinitely more resourced than just about any of them could even imagine. In relation to them, I am a rich man. So in this story, I am the rich man. And so I have to think about who is at my gate. Who am I not seeing? And what am I called to do in response? On Thursday night, Franciscans all around the world will gather and commemorate the passing of Francis of Assisi, his transition from this life to life in God in the service of the Transitus. And on Friday we will celebrate his feast day. Francis is someone who saw the poor at his gate. And he responded in a way that most of us couldn't even begin to fathom how to do that. He joined them. He gave back or gave away everything that he owned. And he joined the poorest of the poor. Now we can have a discussion about how useful that is. And mostly that's not a very useful thing to do when people who do have wealth go and join the poorest of the poor, because all that means is the very little that they have then gets stretched to a few more. But in Francis's case, it was an interesting thing to do. As his notoriety grew, and as he became more visible, so did the people that he lived among, the poor, the lepers. The wealthy of his society were forced to see the poor at their gate. And they were forced to think about how to respond. If they were to respond to Francis, they had to respond to the people that he lived among. Well, Francis isn't the only Franciscan saint. In a month and a half, we're going to celebrate Elizabeth of Hungary, who is known as one of the illustrious saints of the Third Order. Now, Elizabeth is a very interesting story. She was only about 25 or 26, I think, when she died. Uh, 
She was born uh, in Hungary, uh, the daughter of Andrew II of Hungary. And when she was four, four seems to be the magic number in her story, uh, she was betrothed to Louis IV of Thuringia and uh, was shipped off to the Landgrave there, the Landgrave court, uh, to spend the rest of her life. Uh, it's a bit harsh on a four-year-old. Louis was ten. Uh, she wasn't that well treated in the court, although Louis treated her well. Uh, when she was 14 or 15, they were married. And by all accounts, that was a marriage of love. And they had seven very happy years together. Uh, during that time, she had three children. Also during that time, uh, this, she was born in 1207. So this is right at the beginning of the Franciscan story. So during that time, the first friars came up from Italy into Germany. Thuringia is in Germany. And she was quite impressed with what she saw and heard. And so she began to uh, notice the poor at her gates and to do something about it. Well, when she was about 21, Louis, on his way to the Crusades, died of the plague, which left her bereft. But because of her extravagant spending on the poor, her brother-in-law, the now regent, evicted her from the castle with her two daughters, keeping the son the heir, uh, and she was left destitute in the streets. Uh, eventually, Louis' friends persuaded this brother that he should at least pay her an allowance, which he did. But she quickly uh, made a uh, provision for her two daughters, and she joined the Third Order. For the next four years, she lived under the harsh rule of Conrad of Marburg, who had been an inquisitor. The harsh penances, fasts, and uh, other things that he put her through eventually killed her within four years. But during that four years, she ministered continuously to the poor of Marburg. When she died, she was placed in a simple grave, and the poor mourned her. Her story soon uh, crept out. Others heard about her, and within four years, the magic number again, she was canonised, became a saint, and a year later, a large church was built in her honour, and she was exhumed from her simple grave and placed in a, in a big tomb within the church. It's always interesting how people who live simple lives end up in large tombs and large churches. Now this is a very interesting picture, and I'll talk a bit about that in a minute. We often uh, focus on the story of what happened after she's evicted from the court, when she became a member of the Third Order. But the really interesting part of her story is actually how she lived while in the court. While I was in the Solomons and in Australia, I spent time reading a book called Following Francis by an American Third Order Franciscan Anglican, Susan Pitchford. Uh, she was the woman I went to listen to last year down at Convocation at about this time. And she uh, focuses her telling of the story on what happens while she is living in the court. She says, what happens after she leaves the court is of not much use to us. We're not going to uh, live as simple a life as she did. We're not going to come under the same strictures that she did. And it's not a very nice story, the way that she was abused by Conrad of Marburg. So, but what happens, how she lives 
once she actually meets the Franciscans. That's of much more importance. And in her book, Susan talks about how Elizabeth lost faith in the complacent notion that earthly inequalities were ordained by God. So everyone looked around and said, well, this is how it is. And if we were to sing all things bright and beautiful and sing all of the verses, it's exactly what that hymn is all about. We just leave off the last verse, which is all about how the rich man lives in his castle and the poor man lives in his hovel. And that's how God ordained it to be. And she experienced the needs of the poor as a shameful judgment on her own luxurious lifestyle. She was stunned to discover that what she was living on had been taken away from others, particularly the poor. Her lifestyle actually made the poor poorer. So in response, she did a few things. She did not harangue the court. She did not harangue her husband to change what he was doing. She simply changed what she was doing. So what did she do? Well, she lived in a way that would not add to the poverty of others. And if she could, she tried to address both the consequences and the causes of their poverty. So she dressed simply. She refused to wear her crown to church. So I find it very interesting that most of the pictures of her are with a crown. The crown that she would not wear, much to her mother-in-law's annoyance. She gave extravagantly. She built orphanages. She built hospitals. She spent a lot of time ministering amongst the poor herself. And she scandalised her maids by, first of all, insisting on joining, her, and joining them in their household chores and then encouraging them to call her by her first name. Now, as John Key would tell you, after his two days with the royal family, that is not how princesses are supposed to behave. Finally, when she learned that the food that she ate came from two sources, the food grown on the estate and the food, the food taken from the peasants who worked the land outside of the estate, adding to their poverty, she decided not to eat food that came from off the estate. So she would just eat the food that came from the estate and she would make sure she knew where all the food on the table came from. Now all of that annoyed the royal family, but she didn't make a fuss. In a way, the rich man in our story today did not. She felt the claim of the poor of the world on her. And she sought to live in a way that did not add to their poverty, that alleviated the consequences of their poverty, that addressed some of the causes of their poverty. And central to all of this was recognising the risen Christ in their faces, in the face of the poor. Her story, and the story we heard of Lazarus and the rich man, raises some questions for me. Who do I see at my gate? Who do we see at our gates? How do we, or how might we, live in ways that do not add to their poverty? 
And how do we, or how might we, work to address the consequences of that poverty and the causes of that poverty? So I invite us to spend a moment or two thinking about those three questions. We're at our gates. How does the way that we live add to their poverty? How do we and how might we alleviate both the causes and the consequences of that poverty? <laughs>